some years ago. Anne Voskamp released her first book entitled A Thousand Gifts. The book is, in a sense, a chronicling of her, um, her journey to be ever mindful of the gifts that God gives, the gifts that are all around us. And before you go writing the book or even her off as merely just a feel-good story, you have to know that Anne's life was indelibly shaped when she was but a little girl as she looked out the window of her home to see a delivery truck coming in and never seeing her sister Amy step out in front of the truck and seeing her mom and her dad run up this driveway in this rural part of the country to cradle their bleeding daughter in their arms as she died. Anne's story was not a story of someone that just decided to put a feel-good project together for themselves. It was a story of a woman who was wrestling deeply with seeing the goodness of God. And so it was through the challenge of a friend that she undertook a transforming experience or discipline in her life. Now, this transformation didn't happen overnight. She didn't go from bitter to thankful over the course of, of 24 hours. It was a long-term process. In some ways, the, the journey to thankfulness was a goal, a, a determined destination. So this journey to thankfulness began by being challenged to make a list of a thousand gifts from God. She started to jot down the little things that she saw around her that she knew were gifts. And this gave her some, some newfound happiness. But it also gave her a newfound mindfulness as well. Mindfulness to consider all of the little ways, all of the blessings. This was profound as, uh, as Jen was reading it years ago and I was borrowing her copy, skimming it, putting it back. Because every single one of us down at the deepest part of our core have interwoven into the goodness and the beauty of the lives that God has formed this reality. We have the wound of Eden that seeks to whisper constantly in our ears, did God really say? Is God really good?
So Psalm 40 is a psalm of defiant declaration. Psalm 40 is, uh, in this series, it's been placed strategically after spending many weeks considering um, affective psalms, psalms of confession, psalms where we would cry out in our need before the Lord. I've said that the psalms are like the gymnasium of the soul. That's not me saying that, by the way. That's other brilliant people saying that. I'm just quoting them. Especially for those of you who find yourselves like me and maybe find yourselves like Anne. And sometimes you want the words, but the words simply don't come. Anne's life was not a life that was marked by some sort of um, blithe naivete of the real hurts of the world, and neither are the Psalms. And so this morning, I invite you to give your attention to Psalm 40 as we consider this psalm praising God for his deliverance, but also begging God to continue to hear our prayers. Stand if you would, and let's read this. Hear God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of David, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who, do, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will. O oh my God, your law is written. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame. 
and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be near and that you would delight even now in showing us glimpses of your glory and your grandeur by your spirit. Would the song of deliverance be the song that is on our lips when we leave this place this day? Would our hearts be inclined as David's was to say that as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. Only you can do this. So eliminate distraction, make our minds attentive and our hearts receptive to hear from you today. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated if you wouldn't. I have three ideas that I want us to see in this psalm. And it's a past, a present, and a future. The past is that God has been faithful in the past. God is, pre- is faithful in the present, and God will still yet be faithful in the future. Now, we can say all these things because God has never, ever once broken his promises. And we need to hear that because all of us have deep within us the little voice that says, but what if this time he doesn't hear me? What if this time he doesn't answer me? Or, if you're the conspiracy theorist like me, it goes to a whole new level of, it's all been a joke. I have issues. You figured this out already. Bless you that you're still here. Um, So let's talk about God's faithfulness in the past. Now, like many uh, children of the 80s, I, uh, I was raised on uh, a very steady stream of very uh, predictable, albeit very strange, cartoons. If you go back and watch Tom and Jerry now, you realize just how incredibly... Um, <laughs> it's really... It's, I would not let my kids watch Tom and Jerry now. That's... <laughs> Here's the thing, like, I was led to believe as a child that quicksand was going to be a much bigger issue in my adult life than it really is now. I was prepared for entire seminars on how to deal with quicksand, and it's just not needed. David gives us some really evocative imagery here, though, of um, being stuck in a pit. Now, it reminds us Um, As we see here in verses 1 and following, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. Now, if you remember uh, your Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah had very very keen experience with this particular instance. See, it, it, it so happened that the people were not so much 
uh, a fan of what Jeremiah was prophesying. They rather liked Babylon. They rather liked their, uh, their captors. They really didn't want to turn away from what Jeremiah was calling them to turn from. And so they got together and threw him into a pit. They actually threw him into a cistern. Um, it wasn't a cistern that was in use. It was an old one. If it was in use, he would have died. He would have drowned. Uh, cisterns were the things that collected and held the water that was used uh, for the cities. So Jeremiah is thrown into a cistern, and he's thrown down into the bottom of it, and um, you wouldn't want to go there. Slick, thick mud. The one time that I rode with some friends to go off-roading was the last time I rode with some friends to go off-roading. Because we're in a vehicle that doesn't have um, off-road tires, but we're teenagers and we're dumb. So we thought, we can do this. Go in on this little open, uh, open field area, looks like a little bit of mud. Ends up being more than a little mud and actually um, buries the axle. Now, if you know anything about cars, that's bad. Um, if you know anything about me, I'm squeamish. So getting out of the car involved stepping into what looked like a little bit of mud, except it wasn't a little bit of mud. It was um, that high on me in mud. My shoe, I think, is still in the bottom of that mud pit somewhere. Jeremiah was stuck in a bog. In fact, it took another uh, to go and advocate before the king and then for the king to send 30 people with a rope line to get Jeremiah out of the bog. When you see David's rejoicing here, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Now, we don't have the context for what David's pit was. But listen to the language of it. This pit of destruction, this miry bog, this was a nasty place where David was stuck and he had something miraculous happen to him. He was rescued by God. He was heard by the king of the universe and brought out of this place that he called a pit of destruction. Not only was he rescued from a bad place, he was set on a good place, right? He was brought out of the pit of destruction and he was set upon a rock, making his steps secure. So we've been talking over the summer about patterning our lives after the Psalms to help us pray. And so far we've looked at two types of prayer categories, right? The first type that we've looked at is various prayers of, uh, of adoration, Meditation, right? We meditate on God's word. We meditate on God's work. We've also looked at prayers of, um, prayers of confession, repentance, affective prayers. 
Now, as Kevin preached out of Psalm 51 two weeks ago, and then Bill Camp out of Psalm 6 last week, we saw in both a self-awareness of sin that came about through conviction by the Spirit of God. David had fallen short of God and was before him in his grief and in his sadness. And in both of these Psalms, David felt from the Lord a healing touch where he was assured a fresh and anew that he had been heard by God. David was reminded again and again that God was with him. See, part of our life, part of our discipline, part of what we, are, what we need as Christians is this daily reminder of this is where I was, but this is where God rescued me. Why do we need that? Because we're incredibly forgetful. We're incredibly forgetful. We're incredibly forgetful. And so we will go once again, just like our forebears in the deserts when they were rescued from Egypt and are now journeying towards the promised land, looked at Moses and said, why'd you bring us out here to die? Forgetting that they were under the slave master's lash in Egypt. Why do we have a weekly prayer of confession? Because we need to actually come to grips and come to terms with who we really are and what we've really done. Why do we need, as part of our liturgy every week, an assurance of the gospel? If I was going to be really bold, an absolution of our sin. It's not because I give it. It's not because Troy gives it. It's because Jesus does it. He cleanses us of our sin and forgives us of all unrighteousness. And therefore we can stand in assurance of the gospel, knowing that if we are a believer in Christ, that God embraces us, forgives us, and strengthens us to live a renewed life. We need this as part of our daily diet because we forget. We need these moments of gospel sanity in our lives because our worlds are filled with all of these competing messages telling us everything but that. Because all around us, the world is telling us, no, in fact, your world is exactly what you make of it. No, we see what we have done to the world, and it's terrible. Our world is what God has declared it to be. The kingdom of this world is becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. A regular diet of the Christian life is not only repenting of where we fall short, but being ever mindful of our rescue by God. Now, do we think that David's miry pit here was uh, sin and condemnation? Not necessarily. And certainly there is an awareness in yours and my life of how God, if you're a follower of Jesus, has rescued you from your sin. But there are other miry pits that we have found ourselves in, are there not? There are pits of sorrow that we have found ourselves in. There are pits of despair that we have found ourselves in. There are pits of grief that we have found ourselves in. There are pits of deep doubt and questioning that we have found ourselves in. Now, you may be in one of those pits right now, but you may be one who knows very well 
like what David said. I once was there, but God rescued me. Many of us fall prey to one of two habits as a coping mechanism. Either we see our pit and only our pit, or we refuse to see it at all, right? But what David is saying is, see the pit, but see the rescuer too. Does that make sense? If you're a pessimist, I'm sorry, realist. We're realists, not pessimists. You're tempted to only see the pit. If you're the optimist or delusional, I'm not biased, I'm realistic, then you refuse to see the pit at all. Both of those are dangerous. I've had a conversation a lot recently as people are wrestling with, do I acknowledge the pit or do I not? Because some would be afraid that acknowledging the pit nullifies all the good things that are happening in the world in their own life, right? If I acknowledge the stuff that really hurts, if I acknowledge the stuff that's really painful, it's almost like I'm saying the good things aren't there. And so I can't acknowledge the bad stuff because it looks like I'm not grateful for the good stuff. Do you know what the problem is, though? It's not an either or. It's not simply a, I'm either going to see the bad stuff or I'm going to see the good stuff. Do you realize that life is complicated? Do you realize that woven into the tapestry of your life can be joys inexpressible, woven in simultaneously with sadness and grief? It is not doing a disservice to one to acknowledge the other. But we're not conditioned for that. But the Psalms give us a window into that, as you'll see in a moment. David says in verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Now, you and I saw in uh, Thailand the unfolding rescue of 12 boys and their coach from a cave, didn't we? Now, I'm not a child psychologist, nor do I play one on television. But I can tell you this, that those boys, for the rest of their lives, have a story to tell. I was once, but then I was found. Beloved, part of what David is saying here is I was once, but now I'm found. I was saved. 
Has the work of Jesus done this to you? Can you say, I once was lost, I now am found. I once was hopeless, but now I am filled with hope. Is your song changed because of the work of a redeeming and rescuing God? Because see, this this moves now right from um, God's past faithfulness into his present goodness. Look at me with verses 4 through 10. David now commends the present goodness of God to others. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man who makes the Lord his trust who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. David says, not only was I happy then, I'm happy now. Because I know that God's goodness and generosity and grace far outweigh and outnumber anything else this world can provide. Look at what he says in verse 5. You, O God, you have multiplied your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them, yet they're more than can be told. It's just what Troy said earlier. Thanks for reading over the shoulder of the sermon notes. We can only really know this to be true by experiencing it. It can only be described in so many words. It can be talked about. It can be declared. But until we experience the lavish love of God in our own lives, it is still going to be a foreign concept. David goes on to call others to trust in the goodness of God by not only commending it from his own experience, by not not only saying, look at what I have experienced, but then actually going on and, and, and telling people exactly what's entailed here. See, it's not just saying, God's been really good to me. David goes on and says, God's been really good to me, and the way I know this is because I've surrendered my whole heart to him. Look at what he says in verses 6 through 8. David says, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. What does that sound like? It sounds like what David had prayed in Psalm 51, doesn't it? When David was before the Lord, when David was grieving his own sin and he's before the Lord and he's praying, he's realizing all these external things are lovely, but these are not what God wants. Do you understand that God doesn't want your religious performance? God God doesn't want you to simply go through the motions. He doesn't want all the externalities. He wants your heart. That's what he wants. Verse 
Verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. It's through God opening our ears and writing his law on our hearts that we experience this. We can hear things all the time. We can read things all the time. But until we hear and until what we see and until what we experience are connected to our deepest selves, to our deepest, the deepest recesses of our hearts so that our hearts are free to love fully the one who has fully loved us, we are still deaf, dumb, and mute. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. David is saying here that in in God's, in, to experience God's present goodness isn't just an occasional act. It involves our whole hearts. It involves our whole lives. So not only does David commend his own experience, look at what I've experienced. Not only does he describe what that experience is, it's, it's God gripping and transforming our hearts. He goes on and speaks now of what happens when God gets you at your heart on the external fruit that shows forth. Verse 9, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. He's spoken of it, not just privately, but publicly, not just to a small crowd, but to a great crowd. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. David, the king of Israel. David, the anointed one of God. David, the one who is in the office of the ruler, the office of the king, has now stood before the people of God that God has entrusted to him and pointed not to himself, but to the Lord. He has said, it is God who has done all these things. And I have not held my voice back. If one were to play back the tape of your life and the internal monologue, what would they hear? Would they hear the pattern of your heart being a heart that's glad and grateful? What would the song on repeat be? To be freed and forgiven and found by God is not a private matter that we keep to ourselves. It's an all-encompassing salvation that impacts every single aspect of our lives. If you had been, um, if you had been one of those boys in the cave, do you think that you would not ever tell your story? No. The reason that I don't think that we, the reason that we don't tell our story, the reason that we we grow uh, numb and callous to the work of God in our life is because we don't see our rescue as significant as those boys in the cave, right? 
We don't see our sin as bad, and we don't see the work of Jesus as as great. Does that make sense? When you've been saved from a little thing, you're a little grateful, right? If I loan you $5 and you say, can I pay you back? I say, oh, don't worry about it. Well, that was cool. That gets you a small coffee at Starbucks. If you were infinitely in debt and I said, let me pay your debt for you, and then out of the wealth of my life give you all of the riches that I have, what would the cry of your heart at that point be? You see, the reason, friends, that I am not a grateful person, that I'm a whiny person, that I'm a forgetful person, that I am one who continually goes, is God really hearing me? Is because I really don't apprehend what God has done to save me. I don't see how deep the pit really was. I don't see what had to happen for Jesus to come and stoop down so low as to give himself for me. But when you see that God has been faithful in the past, God is faithful in the present. You can rely on him to be faithful when future troubles come. Look at verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love, the love that you have bound yourself to me with, right? This is that, this idea of God binding himself to us in covenant love, not just tolerance, but love, right? Not only does he love you, but he likes you and he's not mad at you. Your covenant love. And your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. And I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. David brings once more his trouble and his distress, his distress and his longings before the Lord. Some of you that have been in the new members class with me over the years have seen me draw a picture on the board um, that talks about what our life as Christians looks like. And we see it as this kind of ever ascending uh, arc towards holiness, which is biblically true enough sort of, with a footnote. Because what happens is, yeah, we're becoming more and more like Jesus. We are being uh, made to die unto self and live unto Jesus. The problem is, the problem is we have been taught this idea that uh, the Christian life is this ever uh, upward uh, movement away from sin, away from trouble, away from distress, right? 
I'm supposed to be blessed after all. How are you doing? I'm fantastic, I'm supposed to say. But deep down, we know that that's not the case. Trouble still swirls. Old sins still show up. Old sadnesses that we thought were gone are back in our lives. What are we supposed to do with that? I'm 25 years in on this journey with Jesus. I'm not supposed to be sad anymore, so we're told. The Christian life is not an ever-ascending arc away from sadness and trouble. It's a cycle. It's a cycle of seeing our great need, seeing our great Savior, and fighting with everything that he gives us. And we wake up, and we repeat. We see our great need. We see our great Savior and what he's done for us. We receive what only he can do and what only he can give. And then we rise up again and we fight once our feet have been rescued from the miry bog. Do you think that David was looking at God going, I know you told me not to go near the bog again, but here we are. Do you think that's what David was saying? And do you think that he's afraid that God's going to say, really? God has bound himself in covenant love and faithfulness to David. And so he rescues him again and sets his feet on solid ground again and puts a song in David's heart again so that he might declare and display the radiance and the wondrous rescue of his God. Do you think, beloved, that God is surprised that we have fallen into the ditch again? Do you think he grows tired of rescuing you? You're his delight. You're his child. If your kid falls into a ditch, do you grow tired of rescuing your child when they cry out to you? No. You grab them, you hug them, you rescue them, you kiss them, you bandage their wounds. And so David cries out. He brings his cry. And the reason that he can bring his cry, the reason that he can go before the Lord, the reason that he can actually come and his, and in his distress make his, make his cry known to God is because he knows that he has no one else that will hear him like God does. He has no one else that will ever rescue him like God will. And you and I have no one else that will ever love us like Jesus will love us. No one else that will give their life for us like Jesus has given his life for us. No one that will actually see us and incline his ear to us and come to our aid like Jesus will. I told you the Psalms are very real. If you're struggling in your prayer life and you don't know where to Pray or what words to use, start with this one. Stuff's gotten real, God. It's more than I can count. 
the reason that David can pray like this is not because he's the upright one or the chosen one or the put together enough one. The reason that David again can come and once more implore before God Almighty for help and for refuge and for hope is because God has sworn on himself that he will always be there for his people. He will never leave nor forsake them. He will not abandon them. David knows his need and he knows his estate, but he says something profound. Verse 17, as for me, I am poor and I am needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You're my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. In the New Testament, Paul records for us this about Jesus. That at just the right time, at just the right time, God sent his son, Jesus, to be one of us, to rescue us. Why do we need to catalog God's mercies? Why do we need to be mindful of God's gifts? Why was it? that Ann Voskamp needed to write and continue a practice of daily mindfulness of the gifts of God. It's because our hearts are ever mindful to be ever forgetful. It's because as soon as the next wave comes, we're afraid that this time it'll topple the boat. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He has delivered you, he is delivering you, and he will not stop delivering you until the day that you're delivered before the throne of God above.